0: If you were the pastor of this church, now I I know that's kind of a loaded statement already because you, you maybe want to be, maybe you don't want to be, maybe you'd never choose that for yourself, but if you were the pastor of this church, what would your vision be for Elm Grove Baptist Church? Now, so this is your opportunity to basically tell me how to do my job, all right? So I know that some of you talk about this in Sunday school. I know some of you. Talk about this when you leave church. Boy, I tell you what, if I were him, I'd tell you what I'd do. I don't know why he's doing that. I don't understand for a second. Now, what what is going on? Why don't we do this anymore? Why why do we do this? What is going on? So here's your opportunity. If you were the pastor of Elm Grove Baptist Church, what would your vision be for this church? What would your top priorities be? What, What goals would you set? Maybe you've already got a list, and you just hand it to me after the service. I don't know. But think about that for just a second. What would it be if you had been given the opportunity, the great privilege of being the pastor here, what would be your vision? What kind of goals would you set? What, what would you do if you could accomplish anything? What would it be? I mean, what really would make you happy if you were the pastor at Elm Grove? What would make me happy if this happened? Or if we did this? Or if that person weren't here anymore? I don't know. What, what would it be? What would make you happy if you were the pastor? The focus today is going to be just that, how to make the pastor of the church really happy. I'll just tell you, self-serving, man, it's going to, this is my favorite sermon I've ever preached. Church, here's how you make me happy. Now, the focus is going to be not, not about me, but Paul writing to a group, a church, and he's letting them know, really, here's, here's what I want. Here's how you can make me happy. Here's how you can fill me up with true joy. And I'll tell you this, it's not about money. We won't collect another offering we've already done that, you've already escaped that, we're past it. We're not going to collect another offer. And it's not about anything that money can buy. It's way beyond that. I once thought, when I first entered ministry, going on 11 years ago now, past 10 years, actually, when I came here, uh, close to the anniversary of me coming here was was about when I started the ministry, if if you will. I started the ministry early August of 2003, and I came here in late August of 2008. And so every time that I roll around a new year here, then it's another year that God has given me a ministry. And so ten and a half years now. I once thought when I began ten and a half years ago that, that really my goals and my vision and what I wanted to see in ministry, whatever church I was a part of, had a lot to do with the building and making sure that the space was all perfect and it was very spacious and lots and lots of room and and really just just as modern as it can be and so on. I always thought that, boy, if 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 music would just be concert worthy, you know, then then man, that's that's we'd knock it out of the park. Boy, that's it. I remember when I started the ministry, I just thought, you know, we just need more people and more money, and and that'll be it. And those were my goals and visions and dreams. And but as I've read scripture, interestingly, as I've studied society, as I've looked at the church, as I've served as a pastor. My thinking has changed. Those are no longer my top priorities. Are those things important? Yeah. Are those things in and of themselves necessarily bad? No. But those those are not any longer my top priorities. I've become convinced that what we'll read this morning, what the Apostle Paul wrote to the Philippians in chapter 2 of his great letter to them, is the real goal that every pastor should have for his church. And so, Elm Grove, I just want to let you know, this morning, what we'll read, here's how to make me happy, and I mean it. This is really what it would do. So some of you are going to do the exact opposite, just to mess with me, aren't you? All right? Turn with me, if you would. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2. You can get there however you want. It's there in your your outline, printed for you. You can go to your app on your phone. You can look it up in the scripture. I don't care how you get there, but let's look at Philippians chapter 2 together. We're in a series called A Letter from Your Pastor, and the idea being that Paul, who was the founding pastor of this church in a great city known as Philippi, a very important city, a very important travel route during that time of the Roman Empire, he had started this church, he was their founding pastor, he had left, and in fact he had left his good friend Luke. Uh, the the physician who wrote the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. He left him in charge as the pastor, but Paul is writing to them about 10 years later, thanking them for a contribution they had made to his ministry and giving them an update on how he's doing. At the time when he wrote it, he was in, in house arrest. He was chained to a Roman soldier. Things are not looking good for him. He's awaiting trial and so he's just giving them an update. So really this is, it's a letter from their pastor. It's a very, when I say pastoral, I think you understand maybe what I mean. It's its a very caring, direction-oriented, encouraging kind of letter. He wants the best for them, and he really does love them. And so this is all about a letter from your pastor. So our goal has been just to sit under what this pastor is talking about and to hear it for ourselves. So... That's kind of catching us up. Paul has told them how much he loves them. He's told them about his life is wrapped up in Jesus Christ, and that's what he wants for them. And so he gets to this part where he kind of turns the page just a tad, and he begins to talk about what he really wants to see among them. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If then there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Fulfill my joy by thinking the same way, having the same love, sharing the same feelings, focusing on one goal. Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. There are three small sections here, really. Sort of you get the foundation uh, verse 1 is kind of, here's what here's what's true of the church because of all that. Uh, and then you'll, you'll get the results. Here's kind of what should happen, versus, verse 2, thinking the same way and so on. And then you'll get how to get there. Verses 3 and 4 kind of tell us how we should go about that. So understand that, that verse 1 is kind of the foundation. Here, here's what is already present in the church because of Jesus Christ. Verse 2 is what ultimately should be happening. And verse 3 and 4 is how do we get there. So, uh, Paul talks. He starts in verse one. He says, "If then there is any encouragement." So, look at those two words there: "If then." Now, it's kind of a bad translation. I just have to tell you, there's there's not a real good way to put this uh, in in a modern English translation. What you, he's not saying, well, if you can find any encouragement in Christ, if it just so happens to be out there, if you see it, the idea is that because there is encouragement in Christ, since there is encouragement, that's really what he's talking. About. It's rhetorical. He said because there's encouragement in Christ, because you have consolation and love, fellowship with the Spirit, affection and mercy, and so on, that's what he's talking about. So what, the way that we're going to look at this is here's what should already be present in the church. Because they are founded in Jesus Christ, because they are believers in him, this is what's already there since these things are present. So I just want to give you a quick rundown, really, of verse 1, and kind of what he's talking about there. So the first thing is because... You are, and that's how we'll frame the first four things, because you are, first of all, Christ-centered. He says in verse 1, if there is any encouragement in Christ. That word encouragement really means motivation. It really means incentive, almost as if Jesus is appealing to them. He's calling out to them and saying, look, here's what I want. And then he says in, some of your versions say, if there is any encouragement from being united with Christ. Maybe you've got a version like that in front of you. The idea is that they are united with Christ and centered on something, and that is Jesus Christ. So they were united with Jesus individually and together, and so they were to be centered on him. Jesus was the foundation for their church. He is the center of it all. And so they, as a church, were to be Christ-centered. Now, it has huge implications for what Paul's going to tell them because without being Christ-centered, none of the rest of the stuff is possible. I'll just tell you that. That's why he starts with Christ. Because if if the foundation of the church is not Christ-centered, then we're just getting together and we've got a country club. Let's be honest. We're just enjoying one another's company. Nothing wrong with enjoying each other's company, but we're not a church unless we're Christ-centered. You understand? That's what he's telling them. The foundation of it all is to be Christ-centered. So because you are Christ-centered, he moves on to the second part. Because you are love-driven. Look at it. He says, if there or because there is consolation of love. That word consolation, really similar to the word encouragement, and it's talking about motivation, incentive, the idea of being stimulated, compelled by the consolation, the comfort that's come from the love of God to us. So you see Paul here talking about we're Christ-centered, we're love-driven. As we're centered on Jesus, we're driven in all we do by love for God and love for others. So there's this encouragement, motivation from being centered on Christ, and consolation, this comfort and motivation that comes from the love of God. And then he goes on to say, because you are spirit-filled, he talks about fellowship with the Spirit. Because you have fellowship with the Spirit. That word fellowship means communion. It means participation. It means partnering with. It means wrapped up in surrounded by, filled with the Holy Spirit. Not just about having a meal. You know, here here at Elm Grove, we'll talk about we're going to have a fellowship. And we all know that just means we're going to eat a lot. You understand what I'm saying? We're going to enjoy that. And the dessert table is going to be full. And everybody said amen. And so that's what we think of when we think of the word fellowship. Now, not just the way that we kind of frame it, but when Paul's talking about fellowship, he doesn't have in mind a church getting together to eat fried chicken and mashed potatoes and dessert. That's not what he's thinking about. He's thinking about fellowship, communion, partnering with God's Holy Spirit, being filled up with God's Spirit. So we're Christ-centered, love-driven, Spirit-filled, and then finally he gets to affection and mercy, which essentially is others-focused. Now, you want a vision for your church. You want a vision for your life, for your family. You take what Paul said right there, Christ-centered, love-driven, Spirit-filled, others-focused. Talk about making an an absolute impact on your life, on this church, on our community. There it is. He says, because you have affection and mercy, the idea here, tenderheartedness, compassion, the results of being Christ-centered, love-driven, and spirit-filled is that we are now others-focused. That's how we lead. Now, naturally, the focus of all those things would turn outward to those around them. So if they were to remain others focused, then it would move them to live with affection and mercy, live at peace with each other. Paul's not writing to a church that doesn't get along. He's wanting to reinforce this. And so, Elm Grove, I say to us as well, I'm not preaching today to a church that doesn't get along. I'm preaching to the friendliest church and the friendliest small town in America. I fully realize that. I get it. I, I'm not here to kind of to, to thump us. I'm not here to correct us necessarily. I'm here to reinforce, just like Paul is to the Philippians. Don't forget these things. Because of all of this, let's continue to move forward. That's our foundation. And the foundation of being others-focused would overcome any little differences. It would heal broken relationships. It would cause us to forgive. Now, I'll be honest with you. As I read this, Paul could have just stopped right there. He could have just said, now, you, you get it, right? If you're going to be a church, then you're going to be Christ-centered, love-driven, spirit-filled, and others-focused. Now, you get the implications of that, right? I mean, just go and do that stuff. Just go and be those things. And Paul could have stopped right there. Really, he didn't need to say anything else. Everything else is sort of rhetorical at that point. Just live that stuff out, church, and, and, and that will be enough. But just to be sure, just to be sure that they get it, he goes on, and so will I, just to be sure that we've got it. Because of all of that, he says, here's what I really want. Look at verse 2, fulfill my joy. Paul's already written a letter that's full of joy to them. In the midst of his terrible circumstances and his sufferings and all the stuff that he's going through, he's still joyful. Paul says, make it spill over for me. You know, I've got the joy of the Lord here in my heart, even when I'm chained to this Roman soldier and I have no freedom. But he says, you know what would just make it spill over? Yeah, I'm going to tell you, he says, fulfill my joy. Get it to its highest level. Add to the joy that God has already given me. Now, some will say, well, you should get your joy only from the Lord. But there's something about other believers that God uses to add to our joy. I think it's biblical. I think it's what Paul is saying. He wasn't incomplete. He didn't have, uh, he wasn't lacking anything. God hadn't withheld anything from him. He's just saying, look, I know what joy you all can bring me. So please add to my joy. Fulfill it. And here's all that I want. You, you kind of get the idea. Here's what's going to make me happy. All that I care about, Paul says, is what I'm going to tell you next. Make my joy complete. Push me over the edge. And what he mentions is really what every pastor wants for his people, and I can testify to that. My goals for Elm Grove, I'll just tell you: verse one, verse two, verse three, verse four. Th- these are my goals. You want? You want? No, where's my agenda? It's, it's hidden right here in Philippians chapter 2 for all to read. Here it is. He says, make my joy overflow. The kind of church that he wants to build, the kind of church that I hope that we are, that I want to be a part of, and one day I want to present to the Lord, this is what we're going to see. Here's all I want, he says, and that is that you get and you stay on the same page. Get and stay on the same page. When I was a coach in high school years ago, I remember we we had about eight or nine of us that were that were we had the head coach and, and seven or eight assistants. And we would have coaches meetings on a regular basis to plan out practice, to talk about the team, and 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 to make decisions. And not all of us saw eye to eye. Not all of us did. Some of us had been there longer than others. Some had had more success than others. Some, like me, were fresh out of college and thought we knew everything. We didn't always see eye to eye. Our coach allowed us to discuss things. The head coach, he's still there. He's a great coach. He allowed us to discuss and to share our opinions and to voice what we thought. We did it, of course, respectfully. We didn't yell and scream at each other and all of that. We didn't get out of line, but but we didn't always agree. But I'll tell you this, when we left that room, we had better be on the same page. Why? Because we were going out to the folks that now needed to see us on the same page or they knew they could divide us and conquer us. That was the players and the parents. Emphasis on parents. We knew that if we did not walk out of that room... Even if we had disagreed, even if we said I'm still not so sure about that, we had to walk out of that room and support the collective decision that was made. I'll never forget one time we walked out of that room, and we went on to the field and we were doing some team defense kind of stuff. All right, so we have the team on the field and we're doing different plays and we're and I was teaching it, and I taught it wrong. I taught it the way that I would have taught it. I taught it the way that I thought was right. The head coach hollers at me, hey. He says, that's not how we're going to do it. Here we are on the field. He didn't call me out. Okay. I had to turn around and and tell those guys, look, hey, all what I just taught you, that's all wrong. We're going to do it this way. You know why? Because I believe that we needed to get and to stay on the same page. You see Paul here, what he's going to explain to us is the same concept. That in the church, we have got to get and stay as best we can on the same page. Why? Because when we leave here, we are going to a a world that will want to divide and conquer us. If they can show disunity among believers, guess what? Maybe the, the message of Jesus isn't really true. Maybe that Holy Spirit talk isn't really true. Because you know what? Their lives aren't any different. They fight just like we do. They don't care about each other any more than somebody out in the world does. What if we're not on the same page? It matters. Now, am I saying that I'm the coach and you are going to do what I tell you to do? That has nothing to do with it. Guess who the coach is? It ain't me. It's Jesus Christ and Him alone. We're going to be on His page, and we're going to stay on His page. We may not agree about everything. I don't expect us to. But when we walk out of those doors, so to speak, based upon the unity that comes through the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit, guess what? We'll get and we'll stay on the same page. Here's what Paul says we need to be on the same page with. On the same page, first of all, in truth. There are four things he gives us. First is in truth. He says, fulfill my joy by thinking the same way. He's going to use that word same and and one. Uh, That's the unity. That's on the same page. So on the same page, in truth, thinking the same way. It's agreeing upon the basics of the gospel. The Apostles' Creed puts it this way, "...I believe in God, the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. And on the third day, He rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father." He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. That's what we must agree upon. We don't have to agree on exactly how to do everything, but if we're not in agreement on the basic truth of the gospel, we got some work to do. We've got to conform our thinking to what the scripture says first and foremost. We're to get on the same page and stay on the same page. First of all, Paul says, by thinking the same way, by having the same foundation of truth. Secondly, he goes on, he says, having the same love. So we're to be on the same page when it comes to love. This is a mutual love for one another that flows from God's love for us. We're to love the Lord and by consequence, as Jesus said, the second greatest commandment is to love one another. That's got to be our foundation in all of our dealings with each other. You ever not love somebody in the church? You don't have to nod your head because, you know, I'd give you away. But you ever had that? Boy, it's tough, isn't it? Some people just get on your nerves. They're church people. They're here every week. Oh, they drive you nuts. Don't they? Y'all are wondering who it is for me. I may be it for you, and that's okay. But sometimes this is difficult. But Paul says, look, you've got to share mutual love. That's got to be the foundation of how you operate with each other. You don't have to, to like everything they do. You don't have to agree. You don't, you don't have to, to be the same. You don't have to be pals all the time. But you've got to have a foundation of love that comes, first of all, from the love that God has for you and spills over into love for each other. So be on the same page when it comes to love, loving each other no matter what. And then also on the same page when it comes to, and I've chosen the word will, and I think you'll understand what I mean, sharing the same feelings. Some versions say the same soul. So we're on the same page with truth, with love, and then with our will, with our decisions, the direction that we're going. And then finally, on the same page, Paul says, by focus, on the same page with focus, focusing on one goal. What is that one goal? It's simply the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's it. To see the gospel message spread to who needs it. We're on the same page in truth, same page in love, in will and in focus. Why do we do what we do? Because of Jesus and his mission. That's it. There's no other reason why we exist. You realize that, don't you? There's no other reason that Elm Grove Baptist Church exists except to to be on the same page with what Jesus is doing in the world to love him and to partner with him in his mission. That's it. Now, everything else is just gravy. Everything else is bonus. Now, that all sounds great. Here we are now. We, We have accomplished it. I've been preaching for about 25 minutes. And we are now Christ-centered, love-driven, spirit-filled, others-focused, right? We are now on the same page, ready to walk out the doors. We're good to go. Now, you're inspired. I know you are. I can see it in your faces. I am. I'm ready. At least act like it, all right? Play, it. Play along. It sounds great, doesn't it? I mean, that's what Paul telling them. Look, you've got all this great foundation, and here's what you should be about. On the same page. I mean, that really is motivating. There's something about that. You just you get excited about that kind of church. How in the world do you get there? How do you stay there? It's not as easy as it sounds, is it? You know why? Because we're all human. It's difficult. One of the questions I've got on the online outline is, is you just to tell me why this is so difficult. It is. Why is it difficult to leave others focused? Why, why is that? Paul just gives a couple of verses here that, that we'll, we'll wrap up with. and He gives them the how. He shows them the foundation, and he tells them here's what it's supposed to be, and, it, and then he shows them the pathway. Here's, here's how you can get there. You want to begin or you want to continue to be this kind of church and group of folks and body of believers, then walk down this path. It all starts with changing your default question. It goes from one question to another. Now, some of you have already guessed this. You're really good. You've filled out the the bulletin already. You're waiting for me to close in prayer. But I'm going to go on. From what's in it for me. That's the default question that many of us still have. I won't say all. But you know, our sinful nature, this is our default question and everything. What's in it for me? Look at verse 3, just the first part of verse 3. Paul says... Do nothing out of rivalry or conceit. Now, when you think of the word rivalry, at least for me, I think of sports, those arch rivals. Now, let's be honest. This time of year, we, we're we heading toward March Madness. Louisville has already won, in convincing fashion, their conference tournament. Still up for grabs for Kentucky. They're playing with a second wind, with some renewed hope. Some would call it Delusional hope, but, but still renewed hope. <laughs> but, you know, when you think of sports rivalries, you, we can convince ourselves all day long, you know, when when Kentucky's playing anybody but Louisville, you know, in my case, I'll pull for Kentucky. And for, for the rest of you, when anybody's playing, uh, you know, Kentucky except for Louisville, I'll pull for Louisville. Come on. You don't believe that. You hope Louisville loses every game they play just the same as any good Louisville fan just hopes Kentucky gets beat by 100 points every time they go out. And that's the rivalry. We we hope our enemy, we hope those other folks are demoralized. We just want them at the bottom, and we're standing on the top. Paul's kind of talking about that, except what's interesting is he's not using a sports analogy. He talks about factions, sort of like political party factions. Now, let me get you stirred up a little bit on that. Well, we see in our world today, the, the political parties, not only do they not get along, they love it when something bad happens for the other side, don't they? You see what Paul's talking about? Don't do anything based upon wanting your enemy to fail so that you can look better. Rivalry. You know what's at the heart of rivalry? Competition. Isn't it sad to see when church people, when Christians, believers in Jesus have a spirit of competition among them. Really what it boils down to, since we are brothers and sisters in Christ, is a sibling rivalry. And how sad is it that some, maybe even here, have experienced that kind of thing in your family? Maybe you raised children who now don't like each other because of jealousy, because of preference was given to one or the other, whatever reason it may be. Maybe you grew up in a family and you are estranged from brothers and sisters based upon some event that happened 30 years ago and you haven't spoken or it's, it's, it's full of tension when you get together. Paul's talking about that kind of stuff in the church. He says, you are know, brothers and sisters, really what it comes down to is are you going to compete amongst one another? He says, do nothing, nothing at all out of rivalry. And he says also conceit. Literally, that means empty glory. Empty glory, that need, that desire for attention, for recognition, for impressing others. I mean, honestly, what if we stopped? What if you put on your stop doing list, I'm going to stop doing anything that is an effort to get attention from somebody else or to get them to recognize me or to validate me or to make me feel better about myself. What if we stopped that? We'd stop a lot of things, wouldn't we? Well, I know I would. I wouldn't say half the things I say. Why? Because it's just an attempt to get somebody to validate me, an attempt to get somebody to make me feel a little better, to tell me I'm right. What if we stop those things? Paul says don't do anything based upon those things. And then verse 4, the beginning of verse 4, he says everyone should look out, what? Not only for his own interest. Literally, it just says don't look out for your own. The word interest there comes later. Don't look out for your own. Your own what? anything your own needs your own wants your own preferences your own stuff your own ideas your own opinions your own plans don't look out when he says look out he says don't be obsessed with don't overly concern yourself with don't monitor so closely sort of like watching the markets i know we've got many farmers here you got to monitor the markets to sell at the right time don't you Paul says, don't don't monitor your own stuff as if you're trying to make sure that you sell high. Our default question is always, what's in it for me? It just comes with being human. It's not because we're trying to push everybody down all the time. I had a conversation with one of my children yesterday. I said, you know, it's not that I think you're trying to do anything wrong. It's just you're not trying not to. I want you to try not to. I want you to be focused on how can you be a a blessing to as many people as possible. That's what I I told my child. So this isn't about me kicking us in the tail. This is about a gentle and pastoral and hopefully loving reminder that our default question can't be what's in it for me. Certainly not in the church. Instead, our default question must change from that to How can I, and therefore we, benefit someone else? Paul says in the end of verse 3, don't do anything from rivalry or conceit, but look, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Paul's answer to any potential problems among God's family is what? Humility. Isn't that interesting? It's not even talk it out. It's not even get in a room and don't come out until you've solved it. The answer is, Is humility. And he shows us, thankfully, what humility looks like. He says, in humility, consider, think about, give lots of focus to others. That's your neighbor. That's each other. That's anyone. As more important, top shelf, significant. More important than yourselves. The idea is that Paul wants them to find significance in giving significance to others. In every book, typically, there is an acknowledgments page. Sometimes it's at the beginning, sometimes at the end. Most of all, it's up front. And the author or authors of the book list who all they're thankful for. They acknowledge the people that helped them get that book published. For the most part, nobody's ever heard of those people. Usually it's not famous people. It's people the author knows and they recognize, you know, without them, without that person or this person, there's no way this could have happened. I really think that in some way Paul's telling us, be the kind of people that are mentioned in the acknowledgement section of the book. You've elevated somebody else. You've found your significance in helping someone else find theirs. If you're a parent, then you know what I'm talking about. Nancy and I were talking last night. You know, you don't realize it when you're going through it, when you're 20 years old playing college baseball, that that's your turn. You know what? You know whose turn it is now in our family? It's not mine anymore. It's my kids. I, I, I love, I find significance, I find fulfillment in helping them become who they are to be. If you're a parent, you get that. Paul says that's who we are to be in the church. People who find significance in elevating others considering others more important than yourselves. And then he goes on to verse 4 and he says, everyone should look out not only for his own interests, but what? But also for the interests of others. That's what we monitor closely, what someone else needs, what they desire, what they prefer, what they have, what they see, what they think, what they say, what they plan. That's how we elevate others. That's what humility is about. I was reading this week in a book, by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and I've mentioned his name before. A German pastor and theologian back during the World War II era was was actually executed for his role in a plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler. But before he was executed, he was a prolific writer. And one of the things he wrote is a book called Life Together. And he just wanted people to understand, here's what life amongst believers is really to be. And he provides for us a few ways that we can apply what Paul is talking about here. To change our default question from what's in it for me to how can I benefit someone else. Here's what he says. First of all, hold your tongue. (laughs) What did your mother tell you? If you can't say something nice, don't say anything at all. Everybody collectively just... Hold your tongue. Think about it. He says, remember that you too are a sinner. Hmm. He says, listen to understand, not just to respond to someone. Here's a quote from what he says. Refuse to consider your time and calling so valuable that you cannot be interrupted with unexpected needs, no matter how small or menial. Some of you have very important things to do in life, things you care a lot about you want to benefit someone else, then allow yourself to be interrupted. If you struggle with that, then let's get together. We'll have a support group because I struggle with that too. Preserve the freedom of others and then forgive them when they abuse it. Tell God's word to someone when they need to hear it. How can you elevate somebody to do that? He says this quote, Understand that Christian authority is characterized by service and does not call attention to the person who performs the service. How can we live in humility? Those are some great ways to apply it. Our vision, clearly given to us, to be Christ-centered, love-driven, spirit-filled, others-focused, the means of getting there, how can I benefit someone else? And the only way that's possible is to go back to what Paul said in chapter 1 when he says, Jesus is my life. You try this stuff on your own. You're going to trip over yourself every step of the way. Try it. Go out this week and try to do all this stuff without Jesus in your life. Go ahead. You know what's going to happen? That default question is going to keep coming back over and over and over, and you'll have no power to overcome it. What's in it for me? Well, I'm going to do this so that it'll be transaction after transaction after transaction. I'll do this if you'll do this. Quid pro quo. Unless Jesus is your life, you cannot live out what Paul is talking about. Unless Jesus is the center of our church, we have no shot. And so this morning, what's your response? What is it? This starts with us individually. It certainly includes us collectively, but each person this morning must reckon with the fact that the truth is that Jesus came, He lived a perfect life as God in human flesh. And as God in human flesh, he died for sinful people like you and me. He took our sin to the grave, left it there, and was raised again, and now sits with God. And one day he's returning to judge the living and the dead, as the Apostles' Creed tells us. Do you believe that? Will you this morning place your faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation? Will you recognize that you need salvation and forgiveness? Is Jesus your life? If not, you may enjoy things here on earth and it may go well for you according to you. But one day when Jesus returns, what will you tell him? What will be your answer? And church, my prayer for us is that we will say Jesus is our life together. He's the center. We're driven by love. We're spirit-filled and we're others-focused, but Christ is the center. This morning, what is your response? I'm giving you a chance on there. You can text it in. You may write it down. You may come with somebody and pray. You may want me to pray for you, and that's fine too. This morning, what does your response Need to be. Is it to give your life to Jesus? Is it to pray for this church? Is it to say, Lord, help me change my default question? What is it? Let's pray together. Lord, help us with our response this morning. As individuals and as a church, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as people who will one day stand before you. We want you to be our life. So, Lord, we respond with that this morning. Give us boldness, Lord. We pray to to come forward if that's necessary, to get on our knees before you, to pray, to go to someone, to whatever it may be. But, Lord, we we pray that you would drive home in us the vision that individually and collectively we would be Christ-centered and love-driven and Spirit-filled and others-focused. Change, Lord, our default question. Show us how we can benefit others. Change us, we pray in Jesus' name.